Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. TikTok's fortunes have changed again. Has Oracle seen its future? You're listening to Money Talks on Economist Radio, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy and the world of business. I'm Rachna Schoenberg, The Economist's finance editor. And coming up, a diamond in the rough. Why the biggest luxury goods deal in history has been put on ice. You know, LVMH is an acquisition machine. It needs to be seen as a good home for companies it wants to snap up. Uh, and there are lots more out there beyond Tiffany. And COVID puts capitalism to the test. We find out which market models come out on top. That sort of radical innovation, which is well rewarded by the system, is exactly what these sort of economies tend to be good at. President Donald Trump had threatened to ban TikTok from operating in America if it wasn't sold by mid-September. We're looking at TikTok. We may be banning TikTok. We may be doing some other things or a couple of options. He argued that the popular Chinese-owned social video app was a threat to national security, which TikTok's parent company, ByteDance, denied. But on September 13th, ByteDance rejected the leading takeover bid from Microsoft. Now, Steven Mnuchin, America's Treasury Secretary, has confirmed that a new deal is on the table. We did get a proposal over the weekend that includes Oracle as the trusted technology partner with Oracle making many representations for national security issues. A partnership with Oracle, a big software company, could allow TikTok to continue operating without a sale. So the Oracle deal, the most important thing about it, it does not fit that demand of a full sale of TikTok. Tamsin Booth is The Economist's technology and business editor. The details are still to come, but what we know at the moment um, is that Oracle's probably going to take a minority stake in US TikTok, not buy it outright. And it will crucially become um, a trusted technology partner for the operation. That's different from the original plan of a full sale because obviously ByteDance will still own most of TikTok. Yes, it's quite a peculiar phrase, a trusted technology partner, and it's something that Mr Mnuchin used as well. Do we know more about what it means? So trusted technology partner um, essentially means that Oracle's really going to tackle the data security side. Certainly, Oracle would be hosting um, all of TikTok's US data. It's a massive cloud player. So it has the technology to be able to do that. For instance, at the moment, TikTok has backup servers in Singapore, so outside the US. In future, US data would all be hosted at home. And again, we need to see the detail on what exactly Trusted Tech Partner means. This week, the administration's technology experts are talking to Oracle's own tech team, um, and we'll be delving into all of that. But at this point, I think what Trusted Technology Partner doesn't necessarily do is address the fears about 
about the ByteDance and TikTok algorithm, which is written by Beijing-based engineers, and the sort of worries around disinformation and propaganda, the idea that the algorithm could influence the election because ByteDance keeps ownership. And there had been other suitors on the scene. Do we have any sense of why the Microsoft bid was rejected? Well, there are two reasons for that. The first is commercial, and it's essentially that if Microsoft had bought US TikTok from ByteDance's point of view, it would have been gone forever. You know, if you talk to um, ByteDance executives, TikTok America is is regarded as kind of ByteDance's probably most valuable asset for the future. And then there's the political backdrop and how ByteDance was seeing the administration's interests. So I think ByteDance really saw an opportunity to avoid a full sale and keep its asset. Of course, President Donald Trump wanted a full sale and was threatening a ban otherwise. Then on August 28th, We had a kind of last minute, completely surprise intervention from China. Beijing made clear that a full sale of ByteDance technology was unacceptable. Um, They tweaked their export controls, essentially to kind of throw a massive spanner into the works. So China was saying that it's impossible to sell. Donald Trump was saying it had to be sold. So you had an impasse where the only kind of way forward really was going to be a ban of US TikTok. And meanwhile, Mr. Trump's advisers have been saying all along that banning a massively popular app could really backfire on him electorally. So TikTok in the US has got, you know, around 10 million users in Texas. It's got 7 million users in Florida, you know, very important states in the election. And Trump was just being told that this wasn't a risk worth taking. Lindsey Graham, for instance, a South Carolina Republican, had been warning about the the electoral effects of this. So that's why ByteDance just saw this kind of political opportunity to go back and say, okay, maybe we can come up with a sort of trusted technology partner type solution rather than selling the whole thing. That's really interesting. So I wanted to ask you whether some parties come out of this looking better than others, but it seems like everybody is saving face here. Well, I think the main thing you can say is that there's a risk of President Trump really losing face because he's gone from demanding a full sale and, you know, no question about it, to really appearing to be much more amenable to a kind of fudge type solution or a halfway house. For me, the clearest winner here in this situation is ByteDance and its founder, Zhang Yiming. It's entirely possible now that he won't have to sell ByteDance's prize asset, which is the hottest social media property out there right now. He's also become much more of a sort of a business hero at home because he made clear that he was going to abide by China's stipulation that he couldn't sell fantastic, valuable Chinese technology. So he was willing to forego billions of dollars in order to protect the national interest. And also, of course, you know, I mean, you couldn't have more exposure for TikTok itself as an asset. So the biggest winner here is definitely ByteDance. China and the Chinese government also looks rather skillful, you know, with one technocratic tweak to export rules at the 11th hour. They managed to really skillfully, without lots of confrontation, stop a sale. And I mean, on the losing side, President Trump's going to find it potentially difficult to face off criticism that he has done a kind of a U-turn on TikTok. Another losing group, certainly in the view of Microsoft, a company which is feeling probably a bit sore at the moment, are TikTok users. You know, if Oracle doesn't really thoroughly protect their data 
that could potentially be a problem. Now, Mr Mnuchin has clarified that the deadline for a deal is this coming Sunday, the 20th of September. How likely do you think it is that a deal will be struck? And what happens if one isn't struck? Yes, I think there's still a lot of uncertainty. So this week, it's CFIUS, the Committee on Foreign Investment in the US, that's looking at the deal. And CFIUS is is a pretty technocratic, you know, by the book type organisation. So they will be really scrutinising this. The president in the end makes the decision, however. My bet is that there will be an agreement by September 20th. I mean, after all, because we don't have the details from Oracle at this point, there's plenty of room to change it um, and address specific concerns. Oracle could, for instance, lift that state just over 50% or just under 50%, so making it look more like a sale. And as for Trump, he can soften the appearance of having done a U-turn by, you know, kind of really getting Oracle to, to do a sort of PR blitz on how they're going to be tough on security. We're already seeing the promise of lots of jobs for TikTok US. If there's no agreement by September 20th, I think um, you go back into a kind of holding pattern. The second executive order that Trump um, put out has a deadline of November 12th that could then become the focus. My bet is that a ban on TikTok is now pretty unlikely. It's really all about the politics. As Lindsey Graham put it, if, if TikTok went dark sometime between now and November 3rd, Trump could find a bunch of young people in tens of millions on the election day, delivering him a pretty big kick in the rear. And I doubt he wants that. Tamsin, thank you very much. Thank you. To follow this story and much more, you really should try a subscription. Some highlights from this week's issue include a look at how America's ban on Huawei buying vital components could end up boosting Chinese technology and an investigation of how criminals cash out after cyber attacks. It's really easy to subscribe. Just go to economist.com slash podcast offer and the link is in the show notes. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Diamonds aren't for everyone. On September the 9th, LVMH announced it was pulling out of its $17 billion purchase of Tiffany, an American jeweler. The French conglomerate already owns more than 70 brands, a glittering empire encompassing everything from haute couture to champagne to posh hotels. LVMH says it walked away from the deal at the request of the French Foreign Ministry. And on Monday, the French Finance Minister, Bruno Le Maire, defended the move. It's his role as the Minister of Foreign pour protéger des intérêts français. C'est le rôle du ministre des Affaires étrangères. Tiffany is suing. It argues LVMH was looking for excuses to abandon the deal and must proceed as agreed. In turn, LVMH, in its countersuit, argues that Tiffany has been mismanaged and that it should be released from its agreement. 
Either way, it's going to be a good time to be a lawyer. Stanley Pignal writes about European business and finance for The Economist and is based in Paris. So what we've teed up is probably uh, several years of lawsuits in the US between Tiffany and, and LVMH, or potentially a settlement will be struck. Some kind of breakup fee is paid by LVMH, or they agree the transaction at a lesser price. And what do you make of LVMH's case that the French government froze the deal? Well, so LVMH claimed that it got a letter out of the blue from the foreign ministry. Now, why the foreign ministry would be writing letters to LVMH on anything is is not quite clear to anyone I've spoken to. But saying, you know, there's a trade spat going on between uh, the US and Europe. And so it would be great if LVMH were to, to hold off on the deal. Now, the French foreign ministry came back very quickly saying it wasn't blocking any kind of deal, that his letter was was more kind of indicative than anything. But LVMH have used it as a sort of talismanic block to doing this deal that, according to reports over several months, it's been pretty lukewarm about. I mean, obviously, uh, this is a deal that was struck before the pandemic. LVMH paid a very full price for Tiffany back in November. The pandemic has obviously been been bad for business. There had been rumors that it had tried to renegotiate, not pull out necessarily, but adjust the price to reflect the diminished prospects of of the luxury sector. And there had been all sorts of disagreements as to the the closing deadline and so on. Remember, this is a deal that was agreed nearly 10 months ago. So it was starting to get long in the tooth in a way. How common is it for the French government to intervene in this way? Not, not that common. The foreign ministry doesn't generally tend to wade into matters of mergers and, and acquisitions in, in such a, a direct way. The French government does take an interest in what its big companies do. But typically when it wades in, it is mostly to do with you know strategic sectors, uh, defense or aviation or anything to do with agribusiness. Now, LVMH is connected to political power. They have recruited uh, from the upper echelons of French political life, as many French businesses do. Uh, so they will be aware of the kind of repercussions that a, a letter from the foreign ministry can have on their business. Uh, we should say they vehemently deny having had any kind of involvement or inviting this letter in any way. And they say that they were surprised to, to receive it. And since then, the finance ministry has come in and said that it, it agreed with the stance of, of the foreign ministry, even though it hadn't been involved from the beginning. What does this development mean for LVMH and its boss, Bernard Arnault, also known as the wolf in Kashmir? It depends. Um, if he ends up buying Tiffany for a discount, which is, which is still possible, it might cement his reputation as a, a stellar dealmaker. If he's forced to buy Tiffany at the agreed price, so the $17 billion from last November, uh, he will be seen as someone who overpaid and somebody who got pretty bad legal advice. If he manages to walk away, which I must say, I think that would be my guess at, at this point, that the transaction won't get done and there may be some kind of damages that will get paid, he will have saved some money. The question is, at, at what cost? You know, LVMH is an acquisition machine. Acquisitions is how LVMH ha has grown. It needs to be seen as a good home for companies it wants to snap up. Uh, and there are lots more out there beyond Tiffany. And often they belong to families um, who want to be reassured that their businesses will be taken care of. There are lots of legacy questions and so on. So the question in Paris now is, you know, does this harm Bernard Arnault's reputation as a reliable buyer? You know, has, has he potentially saved himself a few billion dollars, but at the cost 
of a reputation as a reliable business partner. And what does this mean for Tiffany? Its shares are down about 7%, I think, since the news broke. And it's been underperforming the sector before the pandemic. So what's in store for the company? So Tiffany is now very much uh, up in the air. The share price of Tiffany is, is a reflection of whether it is still a takeover target rather than its intrinsic value. And it could be taken over by LVMH or it could be taken over by by somebody else. Here's a hint, though. Uh, before LVMH came along, it was trading, I think, at $85, $90 a share. It's now over $110 a share. So given that its prospects are not that likely to have improved through the pandemic, I think the indication is that people still think that it will be taken out. It could remain an independent company. It's a listed company with a stable management. And then the question will be, how quickly does spending come back? Its latest quarterly results that were out in in late October were not so bad. People are still getting engaged. It's still a very recognized brand. So it it, it could decide to go alone. But I think the assumption is that, you know, once you say that you're up for sale, you tend to walk down the aisle pretty quickly. So it wouldn't be the first time that a company manages to escape takeover and actually thrive as a luxury brand. Your Schumpeter column in this week's Economist looks at Hermes. Do you think Tiffany could take a leaf out of the Hermes playbook? Oh, a, a most excellent plug, Rachana. I, I commend you. <laughs> so, so 10 years ago, uh, LVMH disclosed a, a 17% stake in Hermes, which is a, a rival Parisian luxury house. And it was assumed that, that a takeover was afoot. In the end, it didn't pan out. Hermes has stayed independent and has done very well, and arguably it's done better than LVMH. Uh, There is a big difference, though. In 2010, the Hermes family worked very, very hard to fend off Arnaud. In contrast, Tiffany last year were very keen to sell. And there is a reason for that. It is seen as a brand that needs a bit of attention, a bit of investment, a bit of the kind of magic that LVMH knows how to inject into, into luxury brands. But that's why the deal seemed to make sense at the time. And that's why I think it's still a distinct possibility that there are several chapters of this saga to be written. And I'm sure the lawyers are watching and waiting. Stan Pinel, thank you very much. Thank you. And finally, COVID-19 is testing the performance of businesses across all sectors but it is also testing the social, cultural and economic systems that underpin them. There's been wide variation in how, and how well, governments of rich countries have responded to the pandemic. Could examining these differences show once and for all which approach works best? Well, the pandemic's offered a really unusual opportunity to students of political economy. You know, the study of how politics, law, society interact with economic performance. Duncan Weldon is our Britain economics correspondent. It's usually a very theoretical discipline. You don't get the kind of sort of naturally occurring experiments that crop up in other types of economics. But what we're getting with COVID-19 is different. We're seeing this almost real-time stress test of how different models of capitalism, different models of running your economy work in real time. Tell us a bit more about the different models of capitalism. Do countries slot neatly into categories? I mean, obviously, capitalism is dominant around the world now. But what political economists have been arguing for the last few decades is that capitalism isn't some sort of, you know, monolithic single entity. So if we look at, you know, the the capitalism you see in the Nordic countries like Sweden, it's very different to American capitalism. They've evolved differently. One sort of 
very common theoretical approach is something called the varieties of capitalism. That's associated with an economist called David Soskis and a political scientist called Peter Hall. And they tried to divide up the advanced Western economies into two broad groups. Liberal market economies, that's countries like America, Britain, Canada, where, you know, it's capitalism red in tooth and claw with lots of market mechanisms. And then what they thought of as coordinated market economies like Germany, the Nordics, Austria and the Netherlands, where instead of the market being used to solve problems, there are non-market interactions, whether that's through trade unions bargaining over wages or the nature of how firms compete or even how firms run themselves. So you've got these two broad, distinct models. So, you know, incrementally, you expect this steady, high growing productivity from the coordinated economies but you expect the more radical innovation to come from the liberal economies. And how would China's state capitalism fit into that comparison, do you think? Well, I think China's state capitalism certainly allows it, you know, some, in raw economic terms, advantages. You know, it's got what some people call this zone of lawlessness, that the state can just override interest groups and particularly private sector interest groups to get what it wants. So it can very rapidly drive growth higher by, you know, deciding it's going to bulldoze something and build something else or you know, compelling people to work in a different sector or directing its banks to lend to certain industries. But there are huge costs to this as well. You know, it leads to cronyism, it leads to low trust. You know, in the long run, there are many problems, even if in the short term, it can generate eye-wateringly high growth rates. What does a country's mode of capitalism tell us about how adaptable it might be to the changes, the long-term structural shifts wrought by the pandemic? I mean, what's been fascinating over the last six or eight months is that if we think of public health as basically a, you know, a coordination problem, that's fundamentally what it is in economic terms then it's no surprise that the coordinated market economies have been good at dealing with a coordination problem. So if we look at Germany, most of the Nordics, partially like South Korea, you know, they're going to have much lower death totals. They've been able to arrange their economies to minimise infections. And they've taken as a result, in most cases, a lower initial economic hit as they've, they've managed the pandemic well. But if we look at, you know, the next stage as we move to this new normal of living with the disease, it's the liberal market economies, which as you'd expect are being more flexible or adapting quicker. We're seeing a much bigger take up there in online retail. You know, even though online retail already had a higher market share in America and Britain, it's leapt even higher as people have adapted. If we look at the move to working from home, that is really being led by the liberal market economies. Again, it's American, British, Canadian firms who have moved to adapt this really quickly, whereas coordinated market economies have been slower. They've started to return to the office in a much bigger way. So you are seeing faster adaptation in the liberal capitalist economies. That's really interesting. What, what is it that means that France and Germany have been slower to adapt to home working? Coordinated market economies, you know, they have all of these institutions, stakeholder rather than shareholder-dominated capitalism, decisions made in the firm often through more of a process of bargaining, Labour having a much more organised voice. And that can bring advantages, but it can also bring disadvantages. It can be harder to push through radical change because you've got to keep on board all of these different stakeholders. Whereas, you know, managers in liberal market economies can make decisions and move much quicker. 
And so, Duncan, we're going to appoint you the judge of this competition. Which market model do you think will be able to claim victory when the pandemic's finally passed? Well, fun as it is to be appointed the judge of which model of capitalism is best, (laughs) I'm afraid I'm going to cop out and duck the question. Because I think once we come out of this pandemic on the other side, all of these different models are going to be able to point to something and say, we did that best. So the coordinated market economies, your Germany's of this world, some of the Scandinavian, South Korea, they're going to be able to say, we manage the actual pandemic better. And actually our economies, because we managed public health, took a much more shallow economic hit than some others. Your political capitalisms, China, they're going to be able to point to a really rapid economic recovery because their system allows them to do that. But the liberal market economies, they're going to have adapted to the new reality better. And if I was a betting man, I would say there's a really strong chance that it's going to be one of these liberal market economies which wins the race for a vaccine. So the World Health Organization at the moment are tracking 34 potential vaccine candidates. Ten of those are in China, just four are in the coordinated market economies, and 13 are in the liberal market economies. And I think, you know, it's a fairly good odds it's going to be a liberal market economy which gives us a vaccine. Because that sort of radical innovation, which is well rewarded by the system, is exactly what these sort of economies tend to be good at. So everyone's a winner. Duncan Weldon, thank you very much indeed. Thank you so much. And that's all for this episode of Money Talks. While you're with us, please take a moment to rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It really does make a difference. I'm Rachna Shanberg, and in London, this is The Economist. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.